When was the last time you ate at McDonald's? Notice, I didn't ask if you've ever eaten at McDonald's, because we all have, right? As some of you know, in the early 1950s, a man named Ray Kroc traveled to San Bernardino, California to find out why in the world two brothers, Richard and Maurice McDonald, why in the world they bought 10 milkshake mixing machines for their hamburger stand. When Ray arrived, he was unprepared for what he saw. In that small hamburger stand, Ray saw a revolutionary method of preparing food, a method called the speedy service system. To Ray's amazement, he received his food just a few minutes after he ordered it. At first, he couldn't believe it. But then he decided this was something that could be replicated all over the country. So Ray formed a partnership with the McDonald brothers before buying them out in 1961. And to this day, billions and billions of people have been served at McDonald's, including you and me. (laughs) Now, regardless of what you or how you feel about McDonald's, the truth is, McDonald's not only revolutionized the food industry, but in many ways, it also revolutionized the way Americans think. With the advent of fast food, no longer must I have to wait to get my meal. I can now have what I want almost instantaneously. The first McDonald's opened in the early 50s. By the 60s, they were showing up all over the place. And you know what then started showing up in the 1970s in homes around America? You want to guess? Microwaves. Now, time doesn't allow me to state all the additional inventions... (laughs) that have reduced or eliminated our need to wait. Yet suffice it to say, we today, we expect, indeed, even at times, we demand that we obtain what we want immediately. In fact, this type of thinking has so permeated our way of thinking that if we cannot receive what we want instantaneously, we often conclude that either A, it's not worth it, or B, something must be wrong or defective, right? Which, and I open with this for this reason, which puts us at a disadvantage when it comes to embracing the Bible's teaching concerning change. As many of you know, our biblical theme this year is called to counsel. And I say that this instant gratification way of thinking puts us at a disadvantage because in Scripture, 
change isn't likened to a fast food meal or something you put in the microwave, but to a growing tree. Just, just think for a moment, one of the one of the things I love about this property, just think for a moment about all the trees on this property. Indeed, think of that big, beautiful tree that is just off to the right when you pull into the parking lot. You know what I'm talking about? Tell me, how long do you think it took for that tree to grow to that size? How many of you think it took overnight? No, it took time for the seed to take root, to spread underground before it started to shoot up and then produce leaves. Well, friends, so it is with growth in godliness. Deep, long-lasting change does not happen overnight. No, it takes time. Biblical change is like a tree producing fruit, not like a microwave heating a meal. Now, to be sure, confession and repentance are actions that the Bible does call us to instantly take. Right? We love Glenn. We love Glenn. <laughs> and I do want to say, just a pleasure, aren't we so thankful for the children of this church? Even the Babels. Yes, yes. 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 He wants his food instantly. <laughs> Doesn't he? The Lord provided this as an illustration. And don't we often respond that way when we don't get it? Biblical change takes time. But as I mentioned, there are certain things that the Bible does call us to instantly, namely confession and repentance. Nowhere in Scripture do we see the biblical author saying, you know what? Take your time to confess that sin and turn from it. You got all the time in the world to forsake evil. No, it's quite the contrary. When the Spirit convicts us of sin, or we are lovingly confronted by our brother or sister, we are to immediately, Scripture calls us to, confess that sin and turn from it back to Christ. So we could say it this way turning from sin ought to be immediate. Yet growth in godliness takes time. Lasting, God-honoring change takes time like a tree. And, and we know this is the case because the Bible frequently, and frequently, I mean frequently, compares Christian growth to that of a tree. You know, a tree has three main parts to it, right? It has the root, the shoot, and the fruit. What do you think about that for alliteration? <laughs> You're welcome. Well, Scripture speaks to each element of this growth process. Right? The root is what you treasure. The shoot are your thoughts, which then give way to your feelings, which in turn produce your actions, the fruit. For example, what did we learn from the Lord Jesus Christ last month when we were memorizing Luke 6? Jesus, the wonderful counselor, the great I am, God in flesh, the Son of God. 
He likens our growth, our life as Christians, to that of a tree, to that of a bush. What does he say? He says, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. He says this, The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Right? In this passage, Christ teaches that we live out of our hearts. He's focusing on the lower part of that tree, right? The root. And in the Bible, we've discussed this before, the heart is not simply the seat of the emotions. No, in Scripture, the heart refers to the mind, will, and emotions. In other words, the heart is your directional system, your steering wheel. I, I, I like it to think of it this way. Your heart is the operating system that runs the apps of your life. This is why, if I were to illustrate your heart's relationship to the rest of your life, it would look like this. And again, this isn't the grace drawing, but it looked like this. Right? Remember this? Your heart controls your life. Jesus teaches that you live out of your heart. Now, Sigmund Freud, Carl Jung, Maslow, Skinner, Erickson, the fathers of psychology, they all taught that you live out of your past or your subconsciousness. That's not what Jesus teaches. Jesus teaches you live out of the treasure of your heart. That's why if you were to go to a therapy session with Jesus, if you came to Jesus with your problems, his first question to you would not be, tell me about your past. But based on his Sermon on the Mount, his manifesto, one of his, arguably his greatest teaching on Luke 6, he would say, what is the treasure of your heart? What is it that you're valuing the most in your life? Therefore, according to Jesus, the way to change your behavior is to get at the root level and to change your treasure. Or to put it more directly, as Christians, to change your behavior, make Jesus your treasure. The good treasure is the one speaking these words. And friend, we will never experience lasting biblical change if we do not get to the root of our behavior. And that's what we're treasuring. And again, the, we've mentioned this before, the best diagnostic question to ask if you are treasuring something other than Jesus is, what am I willing to sin to get and sin if I can't get it? If there's anything in your life that you are wanting in that moment that you're willing to sin to get it or sin if you can't, the, Jesus would say, the Bible would say, in that moment, that is your treasure. You, you live out of your heart. Jesus in Luke 6 gives important instruction concerning the root of our behavior. He's He's focusing right there, okay? 
This morning is the last Sunday in April, and I, and I planned this for weeks, actually, but what I wanted to do, since this is the last Sunday of the month, our, our memory verse for the month of April, as you know, it's in your bulletin, it has been 2 Corinthians 10.5. So as you might have surmised, that passage, as we've been reciting week after week, that focuses on this aspect of the tree. Tracking with me? And because this is such an important component to biblical change, what I want to do this morning is, is something just a little bit different. Okay? This sermon's going to be different than other sermons. And that all I want to do is just provide a practical exposition from one verse. I want us to look carefully at the context and then this one verse that we're memorizing to get everything we can out of it, how we can apply it and understand it into our lives, okay? And that is two things in particular. I want us to know how we are to take every thought captive in obedience to Christ and then why we ought to take every thought captive in obedience to Christ. Those are, those are my, where I'm going this morning, okay? So different than working through 2 Samuel, uh, we're, we're just going to look at this one verse and drill down, okay? Let's go. So, if you haven't already, please turn with me to 2 Corinthians 10. That's page 969 in that paperback Bible. There we go. And as you're turning there, let me give you the context, okay? The Apostle Paul wrote 2 Corinthians from Macedonia a year or so after he penned 1 Corinthians during his third missionary journey. As several commentators have pointed out, 2 Corinthians chapter 10 is quite possibly the high point of this book and the main thing Paul wants to say to, these, to the Corinthians. Chapter 1 is introductory. In chapters 2 through 7, Paul spends a significant amount of time giving legitimacy to his ministry. Then in chapters 8 and 9, Paul appeals to the Corinthians to be generous as Paul prepares an offering for the Jerusalem saints. Then now in this chapter, chapter 10, Paul speaks of spiritual strength using military imagery. And as we're about to see, a key aspect to the spiritual battle is how we think. So following your copy of God's Word, as I read 2 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning in verse 1, I'm going to read 1 through 6, so we kind of get the context here. Paul writes this. He says, I, Paul, myself, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I am away. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. Now, it's important to note here so we don't get confused that Paul uses that term flesh. He's usually in two different ways in those verses. And we know that's the case based on the prepositions 
before the word flesh. Okay? In verse 3, when he talks about in the flesh, he's simply referring to his physical body. Whereas according to the flesh refers to the mindset in accord with our fallen natural instincts. Instincts given full vent by those who ridicule Paul there in the church in Corinth. Okay? So there's some that are criticizing Paul of walking in accordance with the flesh, sinful ways. But he says, no, he lives in the flesh of the body. Now he talks about the weapons he has for spiritual warfare. Look at verse 4 and 5. I'll see verse 4 again. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. And here's our memory verse. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And this is what Paul does. And take every thought captive to obey Christ. This is our memory verse. And as I said, this is where we're going to really camp out here in a moment. But, but what I want you to notice is what Paul now says next. He's going to talk about a punishment. This punishment refers to him as an apostle dis- disciplining the unrepentant in that congregation. Yet to this punishment, this punishment we're going to see is tied to the Corinthians' faithfulness as well. You see, Paul's punishment of the opposition coincides with the obedience of the Corinthians because part of their own obedience is the refusal to put up with the subversive ways of those that are opposed to the gospel in that congregation. So this is what he means when he speaks of their obedience being complete, right? So we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion are raised against the knowledge of God and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. And this is what he says when he comes, being ready to punish Every disobedience, when your obedience, friend the Corinthians, is complete. Amen and amen. This is God's good word. One of my favorite quotes is from Thomas Edison. I might have shared it with you before, but he said this. He says, 5% of the people think. 10% of the people think they think, and the other 85% would rather die than think. Now, judging by some of your chuckles, you have been around people in that 85%, right? Well, notice Paul in this text, he's really calling us to be in that 5%, isn't he? Indeed, even more than that, notice Paul's language is even stronger than that. Using warfare imagery, Paul says that we are to subdue every thought. Thus, as we've been reciting every week, I believe this passage counsels us to do this, and that is simply to take every thought captive in obedience to Christ. This is the headline for this message. This is the the main point. This exhortation that we as God's people are to take every thought captive in obedience to, to King Jesus. I just want to pause here for a moment. Think of all the songs we just sung this morning. And what those songs testify about Jesus. Do we believe it? Crown him with many crowns. 
the lamb upon the throne. There is a king of the universe and it is not us. Who is it? It's always Jesus, the question, right? So is Jesus. We are called to take not some, not most, every thought captive in obedience to Christ. As several commentators have pointed out, the Greek word for thought in this text, it occurs just six times in the New Testament. All but this one in the plural and all but one in 2 Corinthians. And the word means something more than just cognitive or merely intellectual properties. It refers to the mind's settled loyalty. One commentator made this a helpful insight. I'd like to share it with you. He said this. He says, The idea in capturing one's thoughts to obey Christ is the bringing down of our natural human self-vaunting. Being humbled into a desire to exalt Christ. The turning around and reconditioning of the fleshly mindset with which we are all naturally born. And, And this notion to take every thought captive in obedience to Christ that we see here, it's not an anomaly in the Bible. And what does Paul write in Romans 12 too? He says, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but what? Be transformed by what? The renewal of your mind. We already give thought to our thinking. Or think of Psalm 1. What does the psalmist write? He says that he meditates on God's word day and night. That's the Old Testament description of taking every thought captive in obedience to Christ. Every day and night he meditates on God's law. He's speaking truth, God's truth to his heart. And do you remember the analogy that he uses to describe the person who takes every thought captive or who meditates on God's word day and night? What did, how does he describe that person? As a what? A tree. Go figure. A tree firmly planted by streams of living water. Take every thought captive in obedience to Christ. So what I want to do this morning is answer two questions. How? How do you take every thought captive? What does that practically look like? And then second, why should we? So first, how do we take every thought captive in obedience to Christ? Well, there are several actions I want to encourage you to take. And I would, and, uh, especially the parents here, I would encourage you to not only apply this into your own life, but if you are a parent, I would encourage you to teach these steps to your children as well. What I'm saying is, have this be common vernacular in your home. Okay? So first, if we're going to take every thought captive in obedience to Christ, the first thing we need to do is take an inventory of our current thoughts. And there are four important categories that we should be kind of thinking through in this regard. Ask yourself, what am I thinking about God? This circumstance, myself, and others. Take an inventory. And, and you can apply this exercise to any situation. You can apply this, for example, being stuck in traffic, losing a job, 
being in a difficult marriage, having a rebellious child, struggling with infertility, caring for aging parents, suffering with chronic pain. You get the point, right? For example, I, I worked through these four categories yesterday when I got stung by a wasp on the back of my head while I was mowing the lawn. It's a true story that I not only got stung on the back of my head, but that I also thought, there's, okay, Aaron, what am I thinking about God right now in this situation? Huh? Seriously, what am I thinking about this situation right now? What am I thinking about myself? And what am I thinking about others, the, the family I'm serving to do this? These are really, really important questions. Because as we see, from our thoughts come our feelings. Right? So, I encourage you to work through this. And such an exercise can be revealing. For example, I'm going to throw up some, some common thoughts that we might have. When it comes to God, often, and I'll have to tell you this, when I got stung by that wasp, what do I think about God? He was not in my thoughts. And is it not true that that's the case? That we have different experiences, what are we thinking about God? Well, first, God's not a thought, or perhaps we believe he's distant or uncaring, when it comes to our circumstances, especially difficult ones, we can often say to, our things, say to ourselves things like this, I can't handle this. There's no hope for me in this situation. I can't handle this job. I can't handle this spouse. I can't handle this, this difficult child. I can't, I can't do it. can't do it anymore. When we then ask what we're thinking about ourselves, it's not uncommon for us to say things like, I'm never going to get what I want. Never going to happen. Whatever that might be. And what we tend to think about others is, you know what? They're in my way. That is, they're an obstacle to prevent me from getting what I want. Again, this common... Thoughts that we have. Now let's just let's just take a moment and let's let's think about our thinking and look at these statements for a moment. First, have you ever had one of these thoughts before? I have, and maybe I'm the only one. I, Pete, thank you. I see that hand. Okay. I my guess is you have. Okay. Do you discern any problems with these thoughts? And do you think any of these thoughts might influence a person's mood? Here is why this command to take every thought captive is so important. If we fail to take every thought captive in obedience to Christ, you know what can happen? We can create an echo chamber in our minds. An echo chamber of unbiblical, God-absent, self-absorbed thoughts. 
Indeed, if left unchecked, we can cascade in a downward spiral of unbiblical thoughts that produce negative emotions. And here's the deal. These negative emotions can then compound the unbiblical thoughts where it just keeps going like this and this and this and this. And faith, when you have weeks, months, even years of this pattern of thinking, you know how that makes a person feel? Depressed. They feel helpless. And you know what? Recent studies show us that many Americans feel exactly that way. And I wonder if you do as well. Do you ever feel helpless? Are hopeless? What about despair? Do you even feel depressed? Now, uh, there's a buzzword, isn't it? <laughs> and I think it's important whenever the topic like this or depression comes up, it's, I think it's very helpful for us to point out that there can be other contributing factors to a person's mood. For example, one piece of information for you to consider, if you haven't already, is that chemical imbalance theory, the chemical imbalance theory, still remains unproven. The theory claims that behavior and emotions of depressions are caused by an imbalance in the chemicals of the brain, such as dopamine and serotonin. However, while public statements of drug manufacturers seem to indicate that this is scientific fact, and, and this, this, this is not a controversial statement about what I'm about to say, there has never been a peer-reviewed published article that proves Serotonin deficiency is the cause of depression or any mental disorder. Furthermore, even today, we do not know what the correct balance of serotonin, dopamine, and other chemicals in the brain should be. Thomas Insull is a psychiatrist who directs the National Institute of Mental Health, and he wrote this in a recent study on the chemical imbalance theory. He says, there is no biochemical imbalance that we have ever been able to demonstrate. And he's not alone. And I wanted to say, these aren't pulled from like some guy's random blog or a Wikipedia page. And these aren't Bible-believing evangelicals. Right? And he's not alone. There's a loud chorus of other research professionals who have published the same conclusions. Irvin Kirshner at Harvard Medical School wrote, the biochemical theory of depression is in a state of crisis. Why? Because the data just does not fit the theory. Now, while there is no proven test 
that chemical imbalance is the root cause or contributor to a person's depression or mood, there are certain proven medical conditions that can contribute to a person's mood. These conditions can be empirically tested and proven. For example, hyper or hypothyroidism. Do you, do you know that hyperthyroidism is often and commonly misdiagnosed as a panic attack? A person feels anxious and nervous and without doing any tests, they can be mistakenly misdiagnosed as having a panic attack. Yet when they run the blood work, they discover the thyroid level is overactive and that's contributing to the person's mood. There are other provable medical conditions that can, that can contribute to a person's mood. You know, Cushing's disease, Addison's disease, low serum potassium and Wilson's disease, to name a few. This is why if someone, as we're, as we're, especially as we're thinking about caring for one another and loving one another and counseling one another and putting them towards the truth and loving them, that's why if this person is like, man, I'm just feeling sad. I'm feeling down. It's, it's often wise and good to get a physical to see if there are any proven medical conditions that might be factoring into their mood. Now, I bring all this to your attention for this reason, faith. Because as Christians, if we're going to care for each other well, which I know you want to do and I want to do, then we must take seriously legitimate contributing factors to a person's mood as well as reject out of love any false notions. In fact, for those of you that are interested, if you'd like to know more about depression and bipolar disorder, I highly recommend this book by a physician, Dr. Charles Hodge, called Good Mood, Bad Mood. Hodges is a physician who practices medicine, actually right up here in Indianapolis. Um, uh, although it can get a little technical at times, it is well-researched and very accessible. Indeed, and this is why I want you to hear me. I invite you, all of you, to do your own research and come to your own conclusions on what you understand to be some contributing factors to a person's mood. Yet whatever medical contributing factors might have on a person's mood, the greatest determining factor is what they're saying to themselves. Indeed, <laughs> uh, all differences aside, you know what's the one thing psychiatrists and biblical counselors agree upon? That the strongest aid to help a person get out of depression is hope. Without question, everyone agrees that the most important treatment for the depressed person is hope and faith. This is where the sufficiency of Scripture stands head and shoulders above any other counseling method and practice. You know why? Because in the Scriptures, we are offered something far greater than anything this world has to offer. And you know what that is? A Savior. 
which leads to the second point, and that is, why should I take every thought captive in obedience to Christ? And you know what the answer is? It's because our Savior is worthy of it. Christian, in Jesus Christ, we have a Savior who suffered and died to forgive you of your self-absorbed sinful thinking. On the cross, Jesus Christ absorbed the full wrath of God for your sins so you wouldn't have to. Look, I haven't. You have, we have not loved God like we ought. We have not served Him like we ought. Instead, we have committed cosmic treason by seeking to overthrow His rightful rule in our lives by choosing to live for ourselves. Such treason, such sin deserves God's punishment for eternity in hell. Yet praise be to God. Jesus Christ willingly died on the cross to save sinful people like you and me, people who were enemies of God. Then three days later, he rose from the dead to justify you. Furthermore, friend, and this is nowhere else will you get this. In Christ, Christian, you have a great high priest who can empathize with your weakness. In Christ, you have a king who cares for you. You have a shepherd who walks with you through the valley of the shadow of death. You have one who can comfort you in our deepest, darkest moments as we sing, and I sure hope you believe it, Christian, he is our sure and steady anchor. In Christ, you have a Savior who will never leave you nor forsake you. Not only that, through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you've been given the Holy Spirit to empower you to obey and fulfill God's good commands. Indeed, you know what you have now, Christian? You have a Savior right now who is preparing a place for you for all eternity where you will enjoy a resurrected body on a new heavens and a new earth and even better than that, you will be with God. Christian, what hope? There is no other hope, none, compared to what God has revealed to us through his sufficient word. Freud can't offer you this. Maslow can't offer you this. Modern medicine, for all its benefits, and we praise the Lord for that, cannot offer you this. Only Jesus Christ can. You see, Christian, you know what, you know what the gospel of Jesus reminds us of? It reminds us that Christ is the greatest treasure. It reminds us that if we have Jesus, we have everything. Indeed, the gospel invites us to deepen our commitment that Christ alone is worthy to live for rather than ourselves. So, you know what this means? It means that we change the way we think. So now this is what we do. We say to ourselves, in obedience to Christ, what should I be thinking? Previously, we saw, what am I thinking? What's an inventory of my thoughts? And the thoughts that are errant, I should turn from. But now, because of our all-sufficient, glorious, gracious, hope-filled Savior, what ought I be thinking about God, the circumstance, myself, and others? 
Now, I'm going to put some things here up on the screen. This in no way is exhausting. No exhaust- and by the way, this is where, as I look out at, at all of you, and one of the things I love about pastoring this church is I know so many of you so well, and many of you have walked with the Lord for many years, decades upon decades, and many of you know the scriptures well. This is precisely where those years of reading the Bible, those years of men's studies, those years of women's studies, those years of teaching kids of faith, those years of your own quiet time where your Bible intake comes into play right now. So in obedience to Christ, what should I be thinking about God? Well, again, this isn't exhaustive, but here's a good place to start. God is at hand. Philippians 4, 5. God is good and does good. Psalm 119, 68. God is in control. And there's tons of verses we go for that, but Psalm 2, 4. He can be trusted. Proverbs 3, 5. You know, as I was, as I was working through this, here's, here's the question that I had. And I'll invite you to this. Christian, do you think God is naive? Do you think he's naive to the problems and challenges we face today in 2020 living in a fallen world? I don't think so. And I don't think you do as well because the scripture doesn't come to that conclusion. The Bible presents God as all-knowing, sovereign, and in control of every aspect of life. And the Bible makes the claim about itself that's sufficient in what it claims to be sufficient in. That is, listen to this, God believes that his word is sufficient to help you in your moment of need. So what should I be thinking about God? So, so again, apply to any situation. Stuck in traffic, a wasp stinging me in the back of my head. I'm in a difficult marriage, I have a difficult child. My job stinks. Whatever it is, what should I be thinking about God? He's at hand. He's good and he does good. He's in control. He can be trusted. What should I be thinking about this circumstance? That God has ordained it for my good and his glory, Romans 8. That God wants me to make me more like Jesus through this. I have to tell you, and this is to the praise of God's grace, no credit of my own, when the wasp stunned me on the back of the head yesterday, and my head still hurts, to gain your sympathy. <laughs> um, because I'd been swimming in this all week, God in his kindness by his spirit said, Aaron, God is in control right now, and he has a purpose for this pain, and it's to make you more like Jesus. How are you going to respond? Then what about myself? Well, I am called to honor God and live for Him. 2 Corinthians 5.15 On the riding lawnmower, I can live for Him. In the difficult job, I can live for Him. In my difficult marriage, I can live in a way that pleases His honor Him. And what about others? These are people I can love and serve. 
not treat as obstacles, Philippians 2. Now, when you've had weeks, months, or even years, and we all have on some level, unbiblical thinking, we should not expect things to change overnight. But Christian, as you take every thought captive in obedience to Christ, please hear me. God's word is clear. Know that growth in godliness is happening. But you know where it's happening? It's happening under the soil. And it will require grace-filled perseverance to see it yield God-honoring fruit in its time. And this is where we need one another. This is why... God is so good to us to give us a church. I need you. You need each other to spur us on as we do the hard work, often underneath the soil or in that chute of taking every thought captive so that God by his spirit will bring about godly change. The problem is, as I alluded to earlier, actually as I opened this message, we live in a fast food society and few people have the patience for that. Indeed, few Christians have never, ever taken Christian discipleship this seriously to this level where they're actually taking the the time to analyze their thoughts and take them captive for Christ. And as a result, they miss out. But Faith Community Church, may we be people who discipline our minds to speak truth to our hearts each and every day, ultimately, for God's glory and our good. Amen? Let's pray.